Also, you know, I worked under uh, Donald Trump's administration. Uh, I, I did consulting work that, that was funded by, by the, the, the office of the president. And, and I'm not, I don't get into politics too much. And, and, and this isn't anything, it, 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 well, there's a fact. Under Donald Trump's administration, he signed some executive order. Again, I'm not much into politics. I don't know all about it. But basically, federal employees could not use the word equity. All right. Today we have Dr. John Gallagher. Dr. Gallagher is a licensed clinical social worker, a licensed clinical addictions counselor, and he's an associate professor of social work at Morgan State University. Dr. Gallagher, I want to hear your entire story. But first, before we go through your entire life story, can you give me some high level highlights, accomplishments and some of the work you've done to kind of frame up our conversation? And I have a hunch that you're an incredibly humble man but I want you to brag a little bit here. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I will do my best. Um, <laughs> you know, I, when, when you say the word, what do I see as some of my accomplishments? And as I speak, as my life as a whole is I'm a father and, and I have two daughters, uh, 18 and 16, Morgan and Carly Gallagher. And, you know, um, you know, just like any mother or father, parenthood, it's not always easy. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it has its ups and downs and challenges. And, and, uh, and I'm just so proud of my daughters, uh, their resiliency. And I'm so happy and proud to, to be their dad. And they inspire me as I share that personal information. They inspire me uh, to do the work that I do in social work. Um, and my youngest daughter, Carly, is actually considering following in, in my footsteps. Uh, she's thinking about being a social worker. My oldest daughter, actually, Todd, is following in your footsteps. She she wants to be uh, in business and an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, so so I would say you know being being a father um, has been a, a big accomplishment in my life. And then from a from a, also a, a professional standpoint, I would say the biggest accomplishment is giving African Americans a voice in the quality of services they've received in the criminal justice system. And, and what I mean by that is my work, my research is related to racial and ethnic disparities in treatment court outcomes and treatment courts uh, for uh, you know, those that may not know are an alternative to incarceration for individuals who are arrested uh, and also have a substance use disorder and addiction and or co-occurring mental illness. And these programs, treatment courts, have been around for 30 years. And we found that in some programs, African-American participants graduate less. They have less positive outcomes than their white counterparts. And so I've spent the last decade or so researching this, this phenomenon, ultimately to give African-American participants a voice in their lived experiences in the program. And of course, we, we can kind of elaborate more on that and, and how it turns, leads to the service learning project my students and I are doing. 
but but personally, the uh, biggest accomplishment is, you know, I have two amazing, bright, resilient daughters, and I love being their dad. And, and um, uh, professionally, it's been my research uh, related to um, uh, giving African-Americans a voice in treatment courts. Now, you said Morgan and Carly Gallagher. Mm. Yes. And we found each other via Google. And yes. I Googled you, you Googled us. When I Googled Dr. Gallagher, a lot of successful Dr. Gallagher's popped up. Mm. It was unreal. How do you think the naming of children has an effect on their course in life? Well, I think it, at some point, they ask, who, who if anyone, am I named after? Um, why did you and mommy come up with this name for us? And it allows us to tell a story. So Carly, her middle name is Marie. Marie is my grandmother, so her great-grandma. And uh, my grandma, Marie, passed away, um, you know, before Carly was alive, but, but before Carly was old enough to really create the memory. So it gave me an avenue to share some of my family tradition, stories about my grandma uh, with, with her, as well as with Morgan. Um, my uh, oldest daughter, Morgan, her middle name is Renee. That story is uh, uh, probably less impactful. I said, mommy and I really just like the name Renee. <laughs> Um, and we, th we thought it fit you well as, as a beautiful young baby, a beautiful young lady. And um, so I do think the, the naming is unique and it's really unique to two people, Morgan and Carly's dad, me and their mom. We came up with it, right? We work together to create these names that are unique to them. Uh, and there's a, you know, a story behind it. I think for, for many people, not all, but for me, they're, they're like, I'm John Robert Gallagher. And so there's a long family tradition of Johns and Roberts in the family. And so it kind of, in, in my family and in my culture, it's kind of keeps the, the, um, the, the history alive. And I certainly don't think that that's unique to my family and my culture. Right. But I think the naming is, um, uh, it, it allows us to tell stories um, about, you know, our experiences and our lives and our families. It does. And I asked my mother why she named me Todd, because my dad didn't have any uh, any any say so in the naming. He said, oh, whatever, whatever your mother wanted. And growing up, people would say, you're the only black Todd I've ever I've ever met. Mm -mm. I asked my mother why she named me that. And she said she just liked the name. Yeah. She was initially going to name me Nicholas because my older sister's name is Nicole. Mm -hmm. But she named me Todd Nicholas Finley. Yeah. Yeah. And as I got older, I appreciated it because it flowed well on emails and people didn't judge me before they met me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that, that's important. So that's that's a tangent that that wasn't on on the agenda. But Morgan and Carly were such good names. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, Dr. Gallagher, talk to me about where you're from and who John was growing up before you earned the title of Dr. Gallagher. Well, I'm I'm from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, you know I was born and raised in, in Harrisburg, and uh, was raised uh, Catholic. So I went to Catholic grade school, uh, and and that was from kindergarten through eighth grade. Uh, then I went to Catholic high school, uh, Bishop McDevitt High School in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and, um, you know, was raised uh, in a suburban community outside of, called Linglestown, outside of Harrisburg, Uh, played sports, you know, my entire youth, uh, mainly basketball, baseball, and football. Um, My parents, uh, wonderful parents, uh, they live just maybe two miles away from me now. Um, and uh, I have two brothers. I'm the middle. Uh, I have an older brother, uh, Chris. He lives in the Philadelphia suburbs. Mm-hmm. He's an attorney. And uh, he's one of those siblings that would always argue and <laughs> always argue about something. So him being an attorney, he's probably very successful at it. Well, I know he does, he's very, very successful at it. My younger brother, uh, Danny uh, works in IT and does computer stuff. Stuff again, way way over my head, right? Uh, I, I I work, which I love, with people. Um, so I grew up in, in a, a suburban community. I was engaged in sports. You know, my dad was the coach. My mom, my grandma, family attended all the sporting events. I had a beautiful, amazing childhood. Um, my my youth, uh, as particularly in the high school years, um, my, my daughters. And they're getting at that age where uh, I may talk with them a little bit more about it, but it was a bit of a, a misspent youth. <laughs> um, you know, when it comes to high school, I was uh, nearly the end of my class, right? I, I did not get very good grades. Uh, I got into a lot of trouble in high school, uh, was, was expelled and then readmitted uh, into high school a few times. Um, but, but one thing I learned through that, um, is throughout those misspent youth years, my family, particularly my mom and dad, always had my back and never, not once, withheld love from me. There are many times they, they call me John John. That, that, that's my family, John John. And, you know, John John, you got detention, you know, get your butt in detention, right? You got in trouble with the law? Well, you better deal with it. I mean, you, you hate, right? Uh, you know, you need to, we, we're not proud of this. We don't support this. It's not okay, but we love you. And that, you know, when, when, when you're in your youth, I, I didn't, I, I certainly appreciated that. I, I always loved my parents and felt their love, but I didn't really understand it. I think though it shaped the work that I do that led me into social work. Because really our profession, if we keep social work simple, it is about sharing you know, brotherly and sisterly love with the people that we work with. That's it. Compassion, empathy, understanding. And so, you know, my youth was, um, you know, filled with, with love, joy, happiness, family vacations every year. 
Um, and, you know, it's a bit of a knucklehead, got in lots of trouble and, and, and um, but, you know, eventually grew out of it. But I think the key piece that, that leads me to where I am today is that my parents never withheld love. They would say, you know, we don't like what you did. It's not OK. You're in trouble. You got to deal with this. But they never withhold love, which I see um, as really a key value of, of the social work um, profession. We have eerily similar upbringings. I have two great parents and I didn't get in too much trouble, but I did get into a fight maybe a week or two before basketball started my freshman year in high school. And yeah. I got suspended 10 days. And then I think junior year, I forged a hall pass because I didn't want to go to study hall. And I got suspended for another three days. Yeah. <laughs> so that was probably, you know, my mischievous stuff, but they never, they never withheld love. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that with me. If you don't mind, I'm always going to, when someone talks about my upbringing, I'm going to, I'm going to say that they, my parents never withheld love. That was a good yeah. one. Yeah. And, and, and to, to even put it in, in uh, a, a bit more perspective, my mom, here's two stories I remember from my youth. And I would say this is around the high school years. I don't remember you, 14, 15, 16. We were at Perkins restaurant in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And so I'm not sure if they have them in Cleveland, but you know, it's like a chain diner, Perkins restaurant. And we ate, had dinner, and the waitress, and I remember her name was Kitty. And she was miserable. She was like the worst waitress of all times, right? And, and I mean, I, I don't, I just remember she was miserable and rude, right? It, 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 in my opinion. It, yeah, I'm a high school kid, I'm vocal and teenager. And I remember the time came for, for my mom and dad, they were, you know, they were paying the, the bill. And I said to my mom, I said, I wouldn't give Kitty a single tip. She was rude. And my mom said, yeah, you're right, John, John. She, she was kind of rude. Seems like she's having a bad day. Why don't we actually give her a good tip? And it'll make her maybe improve her mood, right? Why don't we just help people out when they're down instead of beating them when they're down? kicking them when they're down. And, and that's a lesson. Boy, I'd like to sit here, Todd, and say, yeah, I model that in my life. I, I will never, I wish I could model it like my mom did. But I, I try. I'm aware of it. And, and one other uh, brief story about my mom is one day we went to Target. It was the high school years. We're coming home. My mom says, oh my gosh, they're they, they gave me the wrong change on, on my receipt. And so we got to go back to Target. So I, I'm in high school. I'm trying to get with my friends or whatever. You know, I'm, I, I didn't want to be with my mom. At that. Oh, gosh, we're going back to Target. So we go back to Target. She goes up to customer service and she says, you gave me, you know, $3 in change. It should have only been $2 in change. Here's your dollar back. Now, I certainly consider myself, you know, an honest person. I try to live to high levels of integrity, right? But I can honestly say to this day, I'm not sure I would return to Target for a dollar. Maybe I'd drop it in, in the collection basket at church or something, right? But that's my mom. And my dad, as I shared earlier, you know, coached all our sporting events, was there for all our events, 
And it's not until you become older, at least in my experience, that you don't see how much of a sacrifice that is. Working all day, coming home tired, and then saying, oh, I got to go coach softball tonight. You know, and, and that was my dad, always there, a great model of the man that I aspire and continue trying to be. That was awesome. That was awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Now, growing up, we are sometimes pushed in a certain directions or uh, we can sometimes be minimally exposed. And it's a tall task to ask teenagers to pick their educational path. I've always known I was going to be an entrepreneur, but doing this podcast over the last four years, I sometimes think, should I have got gone into journalism? Mm-mm. Because after I do a podcast, I'm energized. I feel great. It doesn't feel like work at all. What was your educational journey and how intentional were you in choosing your career path? You know, I've been very blessed that early on in my educational path, I was like, that's what I want to do. Addiction and mental health counseling. Uh, Once I graduated high school, I wanted to go away to college. And uh, quite frankly, I wanted to go away to party, have fun, uh, hang out with my friends. My parents, great parenting, said, John, John, you ain't leaving, right? You're, you're, You're going to college, but you're going to community college, Harrisburg Area Community College. And it was the best decision. Number one, my SAT scores were extremely low. So I, I probably wouldn't have got into many, if any, colleges. Um, so I went to Harrisburg Area Community College. Uh, I actually majored in criminal justice. I wanted to be a police officer. And the reason I wanted to be a police officer is when I was a young kid, my grandma would take me to the post office with her. She would mail stuff. And always at the post office, there was like the most wanted signs of, you know, the people who were wanted, I don't know, maybe nationally, the FBI or in the city of Harrisburg. And I was just always intrigued as, as a young kid of, you know, what, what, what it most wanted and they've committed some crime. And I just always looked forward to going to the post office with grandma so I could look at those signs. There was something about it that intrigued me. And certainly to this day, you know, crime, criminology, uh, uh, criminology still intrigues me. So I went to Harrisburg Area Community College uh, to um, major in criminal justice, which I did. But I would say it was uh, either my first or second year there. I took a class in addictions and it was Addiction 101. And to this day, I wish I remembered the name of the professor. I can tell you what he looked like. I can tell you where he worked. I just don't remember his name, but he was a great professor. And he taught about addiction and he said things like, you know, addiction for some is a brain disease. And I just found that very intriguing. Um, And I was also at that point in my life, again, I was probably 18, 19, I was dealing with my own set of, of legal issues that I got myself into because of choices I made. So I was really questioning my ability to even become a police officer because of criminal histories and stuff like that. Um, so when I had this addiction class, 
I said, this is what I want to do. I want you say addiction is a disease. I, I, I want to learn about it. I want to help people with this. Um, I, I want to um, learn more about it. And so I completed my degree, my associate's degree at Harrisburg Area Community College. And then I transferred to Alvernia University, which is a small Catholic liberal arts university in Reading, Pennsylvania. And one of the reasons I transferred there is they had a good criminal justice program. Although I was interested in addiction counseling, I still was going to get my degree in criminal justice because I was so far along in that degree. Um, but Alvernia, you can uh, actually major, you can get a bachelor's degree in addiction studies. So I took a lot of addiction classes. And, um, you know, at this point, I'm 21, 22. And while at Alvernia, while pursuing my bachelor's degree, I um, got a job uh, working at Berks County Prison. And I was basically a, a drug and alcohol mental health counselor for inmates, those that were incarcerated. I mean, my office was actually a cell. They just took the bed out and put a desk in. And that was when, like, I had the educational path. I wanted to do addiction counseling, coupled with now I actually have a job doing addiction counseling. I loved it. And I said, well, to really do this, to do it at, 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 at a higher level, you need a master's degree. So then I went and got my master's in social work, uh, just so you can have a master's degree and, and become fully licensed, what they call it LCSW, as you shared earlier, a licensed clinical social worker. You need a master's degree for that. And continued just doing counseling through the years. Um, and then probably at the end of my master's degree, I said, you know, I, I love counseling, but I also love like lecturing, teaching, presenting. And I've read a lot of research about addiction and mental health recovery. I'd like to do my own research. So in order to do that, for me, I needed to go, excuse me, get my PhD. And um, I, I, said, I, I, I said to Morgan and Carly's mom at the time, I said, you know, I'm really considering getting a PhD. You know, she said, yeah, I support you. I said, well, like we were living in Pennsylvania. I said, I'll probably have to move, right? And um, uh, she was very supportive and said, you know, if we got to move, and you know, I support you. And and we 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 picked up, you know, Morgan, Carly, me, and 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 their mom, and, and we moved from Pennsylvania and went to Texas, and we're there for five years while I pursued my my PhD. Um, and, and that's where I learned about research. And did my dissertation, which was related to, you know, racial disparities in treatment courts or drug court outcomes. Um, so, so my educational journey really uh, began early on at community college where I said, I want to do addiction counseling and fell in love with the profession. And it just grew since. And in that, you know, I'm 43 now and, you know, I've been doing addiction and mental health counseling work for, for over two decades. Now. I mean, I've been doing it, I think I started around, you know, 20 or even 21 years old. It was right after my associate's degree. Uh, and it really is, you know, social work is, is a beautiful profession. I, you know, I, I say this often to, to my students, to, to, to anyone who's, who asks or is interesting. I really feel that I'm a better man today 
because of the beautiful, amazing people, the patients, the families that I've worked with through the years. I feel I'm a better father today because of the beautiful, amazing people, the patients, the clients that I've worked with through the years. Because to hear their stories, stories, devastating stories of, of trauma and, and oppression and hurt and to see them bounce back and say, I still deserve and want happiness, improved quality of life, recovery from drugs and mental health disorders is, is something you get exposed to it enough. It changes you in, in a very positive way. Uh, as a person. So not only is this a profession uh, that, that we help others, right? I, 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 I must admit and have to highlight that it is equally as much helped me as a person grow. I'm more patient. And don't get me wrong, Todd, I got my whole set of shortcomings. Ask, ask my girlfriend, ask my daughters, ask my friends, ask my mom. I got my own set of shortcomings. Got lots of them, actually. But I'm, I'm a better person today for many reasons, my, my faith, the people I have in my life, but also because of, of social work. What attracted you to Morgan State? So I, I'm Catholic. I'm very involved in my, my Catholic faith. You know, I go to church and I'm a Eucharistic minister for the Catholic Church. Uh, and that means I, I serve communion. I'm able to serve communion. So. I'm involved in my, my Catholic faith and um, I divorced, I got divorced more from Morgan Carter's mom in 2014. And around that time, their mom and Morgan Carly moved from Indiana. We were living in Indiana at the time to Pennsylvania where I live now. And so for about five years, so from about 2014, 15 to 2020, I fathered from 600 miles away. So once a month for five years, I either drove or flew from South Bend, Indiana to Pennsylvania to be with my daughter. Um, certainly as, as you and, and anyone you know, can imagine, whether a parent or not, you can imagine, right? You know, anyone that, that it, was, it was difficult. Uh, this is why you know, I really highlight the, the resiliency of, of, of Morgan and Carly. And so for five years, I certainly contemplated, um, you know, moving home. I wanted to be with my daughters. But as my daughters knew, I didn't just have a job that I could pick up and leave. Right. My I, I work at a school of social work, but my specialty is addiction and mental health counseling and then racial disparities within the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. So it's pretty specific. And not every school of social work hiring, not every school of social work is looking for someone that does what I do. So for five years, I fathered from 600 miles away, saw my daughters about once a month. Uh, well, not about every, never missed a month. Once a month was here for, you know, maybe you know, four to seven days and spent time with my daughters. And this was December or January so December of 2019, January of 2020. And this is why I shared about my Catholic faith earlier. I left church. Sunday night was driving home to my apartment. And I had this thought, John, 
you're moving home. It's time to be with your daughters. And I was overwhelmed with this sense of peace. I drove to TGI Fridays in South Bend, Indiana, you know, ordered an appetizer and a beer. I texted my boss at Indiana University, the associate dean, great boss, great, great school social work. And I said, you know, let's touch base soon. I'm going home to be with my daughters. And, and the associate dean, Indiana University, again, school social is a beautiful to work. I loved working there. They knew that I fathered from so many miles away. They knew once a month I was gone, so and so forth. They were very supportive. And Beth, my, my friend and, and boss at the time, said, you know, we, we support you. And this is unlike me because I don't just quit jobs without having something else lined up, right? And it's not like I quit. I said, I'm going to finish out the semester. So I let Indiana University know in December or early January of 2020 that I was leaving. I had no job lined up. I just knew I had no anxiety, which is unlike me. And I was full of peace. I'm moving. I'm going home to be with my girls. It's been too long. And then the pandemic hit in what March of 2020. So all this was decided before the pandemic even hit. Indiana University, the pandemic, I mean, if, if we can draw anything positive from it, of course, I think the way I want to minimize, obviously, the devastating consequences, uh, hurt and death that came from it. But I was able to continue working at Indiana University because the pandemic hit. I was now living in my parents' basement right, as I moved home to, to Pennsylvania. Um, but I was closer to my daughter's. And was able to see them, um, you know, obviously more than once a month. So I'm home. The pandemic's going on. I'm like, well, ain't no one going to be hiring during the pandemic. And Indiana University was, they knew I was living in Pennsylvania. Again, they were very supportive. I was still working with them. And they even said to the point, hey, we'll work with you until you find another job. So I went on, on a website, a social work, you know, website. And I saw that Morgan State University in Baltimore, not far from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where I live now, was hiring. And they were looking for someone who has expertise in addiction counseling, check, and it being an HBCU who has you know some understanding of HBCU, some interest to address uh, criminal justice reform issues, or like my research on best practices in serving African-Americans in treatment courts. And so it was in, in my mind, and again, you know, it, it's either a coincidence that all this worked out, and, and I certainly would respect people's views on that, and very well maybe. And in my eyes, you know, it was definitely God, my faith working in my life, because I would never say I'm leaving this job, and I loved Indiana University. I still love them. It's a great place to work. And going home with no game plan and not feel anxiety, but I felt none. I had thoughts, hmm, how am I gonna put? I felt peace. And so I applied to Morgan State University. The pandemic was full, you know, in, 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 in you know, it was, was full force. 
I applied during 2020. I did interviews all virtually through 2020 and then was offered the job, said absolutely. And I started in January of 2021, about two years ago. And all of this, Indiana University, my former employer, supported me. They said, well, we will we will allow you to continue working for us. We want you virtually until you start at Morgan State. And then if you start in January, then we'll end your contract then. Um, and it has just been a blessing beyond what I could imagine of the, the gifts that, that I have received by working at an HBCU. Working at an HBCU, uh, the avenues and paths that it has set up for me to, to continue doing my research agenda, to reach more people, to have a greater impact, but not alone, to be able to surround myself with colleagues and students who have the same passion and desire for criminal justice reform as I have. And it's contagious. And I mean, the, the HBCU culture is contagious. I was in Nashville this summer doing a training at a conference. There's, it's a, called the NADCP, National Association of Drug Court Professionals. So a criminal justice reform conference, there's seven, 8,000 people there. I'm, I'm speaking at one of my presentations very large conference. And I see I'm from Morgan State University, uh, uh, historically black university in Baltimore, Maryland. Someone from the audience yells out, you know, shout out to HBCUs. <laughs> I say, yeah, I'm in Seattle, Washington, a few months ago, October of 2022, just a few months ago, I'm in Seattle, Washington. And I say, yeah, I work at Morgan State University. Someone from the audience, shout out to HBCUs, right? And 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 and, and she said, yeah, the HBCU, I forget it, that she went to. Um, I had someone from Oklahoma wanted to do a, a local news story. This would have been in Oklahoma. We would have done it virtually on, on depression. And she gave a shout out to HBCUs. So the, when it comes to the HBCU culture, oh, I, I'm a rookie. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm learning all this, but it's beautiful that I've found that everywhere I go, Nashville, Tennessee, Seattle, Washington, Oklahoma, a local a journalist, local news reporter. Right. Very proud of being part of an HBCU. And I see the, the proudness in them. But now and I'm still a rookie, but now I'm starting to learn and see where that comes from. Because there's a lot to be proud about, meaning I thought I could have real, candid, honest conversations about race and racism. I thought I could, right? I mean, I thought I could, could, could be open and honest and share my experiences and learn others' experiences um, and just have a dialogue about race. I thought I could until I came to Morgan State University and met the students. And not that at Indiana University, trust me, we have conversations about race. But it wasn't until I've come to an HBCU and meeting with the faculty and the students and the norms at Morgan State University that I was able to say, wow, 
I got a lot more to learn. Not that I thought I knew it all. Trust me, I didn't. But I have a lot more to learn about having conversations about race and racism. And it's fun to be able to learn and have those conversations. It's humbling to be able to say, hey, I'm the professor and I teach and I have this certain area of expertise in addiction, mental health and addiction is a brain disease. I can teach it now. And I have my experiences uh, with working with race and ethnicity within a criminal justice system. I'm comfortable sharing that. But we have real conversations. Um, and a lot of those conversations, we student led. They're telling me their lived experiences growing up in urban communities, their lived experiences with racism, their lived experiences uh, growing up in Baltimore and, 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 and other uh, areas that, that we serve. So the, the path to Morgan State is, in my mind, a very spiritual path where I, I believe personally in my life, God has you know, called me to serve. Um, and it has just been an, a, a humbling experience, an exciting experience. Um, uh, and so I'm still absorbing it and I'm two years in. I, I really am. I remember the very first meeting I went to at Morgan State. So this would have been January of 2021. The very first meeting was the president, our president, Wilson, the president of Morgan State University, you know, just giving an opening uh, discussion and, and lecture to the, to the faculty and staff of the start of the spring 2021 semester. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but recently there were bomb threats to HBCUs. And if I recall correctly, Morgan State University was one of them. And I sat back and it's my very first kind of interaction with the university besides the hiring process. And I, I, I just, it was a new experience to me. We didn't have that at Indiana University, right? We didn't have people projecting hate onto the school. We didn't have people calling in bomb threats because it's a historically black university. And for me, it was just so, it, it brought tears to my eyes because although I work in the area of race, you know, there, there's so much that I, I have just been, you know, naive to, right? And it isn't until you're open and honest with others about that such as my students, that boy, once you're open and honest and just genuine, here's me, here's my experience where I come from, the, the, the floodgates open of, of knowledge and experience. Yeah. Um, it, it's been a beautiful experience that I honestly am still absorbing all of it. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Racial disparities in drug court outcomes. So over the years in the black community, many have said that drug courts punish black and brown people differently than white people. Talk to me about your research in this area. So, yes, in some drug courts, 
research and actually some of the research that I did, this would have been 2012 with a drug court in the South found that African-American participants were punished or the language they use in the drug court model, they received sanctions, consequences, punishments at a more severe level than their white counterparts. And there was evidence of that. Now, again, that's limited to that one drug court, not that the, the, the magnitude of the problem, I'm sure, is much larger. Right. Uh, but it's limited to that one court. Drug courts have been around since 1989. They are, you know, as I shared earlier, an alternative to incarceration for individuals that have substance use disorders, addictions. And the, 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 you know, to, to put it simply, the thinking is if you have a drug problem and you've been arrested for maybe a felony possession charge because you possessed heroin for your personal use, we can either put you in jail or we can give you treatment services outside of jail, but under the supervision of the criminal justice system. So the thinking is if we treat the underlying issue, the core issue, addiction, folks will achieve recovery from addiction and hence stay out of the criminal justice system. So it is a treatment rehabilitative process as compared to the historically punitive incarceration model of criminal justice. Drug courts, we have 30 years of evidence, they work. There's no doubt about it. Meaning if you have two matched groups, and we have 30 years of evidence doing these types of studies, these are matched groups, meaning they're similar in key characteristics age, gender, race, drug of choice, et cetera. And this group does probation, regular probation, and this group does treatment court. Those that do treatment court, drug court, stay out of the criminal justice system more so than those that do probation as usual. And so those that do treatment court have a lower criminal recidivism rate than those that do regular probation. We have 30 years, and I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say hundreds of studies to say treatment courts work as a whole. But now, when we take a look at race and outcomes, here's where we start to see the, the alarming and unfortunate trend of racial disparities, particularly in graduation rates. And so do drug courts work? Absolutely. As a whole, they work. No, no, no credible researcher would even challenge that anymore. Research, they work. Are drug courts equally effective across race? No. Now, this is not universal to all programs, but there are many programs. There is enough of a trend that African-Americans graduate less than their white counterparts. So here would be a recent example. Colleagues and I recently evaluated a Midwestern state and we gathered data from 30 types of treatment courts. So when we say treatment courts, they all operate under the same philosophy. Let's treat the issue in the hopes of achieving recovery that will help people stay out of the system that will minimize rearrest. So you have mental health courts. If we treat mental illness, that will lower recidivism rates. Drug courts, if we treat addiction, 
We have veterans courts. We treat issues maybe related to trauma, uh, uh, alcohol use, drug use with veterans. We treat the issue, they stay out of the system. In this Midwestern state, the graduation rate for white participants in 30 treatment courts across the state was about, and, and I don't know the exact, but around 65 to 70% of white participants in these treatment courts graduated. The graduation rate for every other race studied, so Hispanics, African-Americans, American Indians, and those identified as biracial were all below 30%. So the issue is, do treatment courts work? Are they equally as effective for um, all races? The answer is, it's not, you know, it's not to all, but in general, no. We know that there are disparities in key outcomes. And, and the, the main outcome is certainly graduation, right? If you graduate, it, it varies from court to court, but you could get your criminal case or cases dismissed. You could potentially get it expunged from your record, depending on you know, certainly the state laws. But ultimately, you tend to be out of the criminal justice system. If you're terminated from the program, number one, you're still in the system. Uh, number two, again, depending on the program, you may have to restart the whole process. And when I mean you're kicked out of drug court, now you're back at like day one. Hey, I have a pending felony possession charge and I need to do something about it. And so my research is drug courts work. Yes. In some programs, but there's a strong trend, but in some programs, um, are there racial disparities in graduation rates where white participants graduate much more often than uh, other uh, races and ethnicities? Yes. And that's where my research comes in to say, well, why do we think this happens? Right. Makes sense. And we're going to we're going to get to that. I'm, I'm glad you framed it like that. And I want to touch on something briefly that you just said. You said the first drug court was introduced in 1989. Yes. And that was in Miami. Correct. Yes. And when I think about 89, I was eight years old. Um, this was right after Reagan left, left office. And Reagan had a big time war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Is there any correlation to the first drug court being in Miami when there was such a drug issue in the 80s in Miami? and Reagan leaving office, any correlations there? Oh, absolutely. And so in my dissertation, uh, I actually have a, a chapter or a section titled, you know, kind of like the unintended consequences of the war on drugs. And so I draw, you know, and, and, and it's my, you know, using, you know, my, my independent thinking and, and kind of like what you just said, my logic to say drug courts, are actually a, a manifestation of the war on crimes or the war on drugs. So with the war on drugs, of course, there were so many negative consequences uh, related to that. Many, uh, uh, some of the most obvious increases in arrest in urban communities, mainly black and brown communities, therefore increased 
um, prosecution, increased incarceration. So there were so many negative consequences that come from the war on drugs. One of, if we have to try and draw something positive, a positive thing to come out of the war on drugs was the development of drug courts. Because in Dade County, Miami, Florida in 1989, the judge saw an increase in crack cocaine arrest. And there was this revolving door phenomenon. You're arrested for crack cocaine. We put you in county prison for, say, three, six months. You get out, you use crack cocaine again, and you're back in front of the judge. And the judge at that time said, we continue incarcerating people who have an addiction. Why don't we try something different and treat them? And if we provide treatment, that may lead to addiction recovery. Hence, they will stay out of the criminal justice system. So there is no doubt in my mind, and my dissertation speaks to this, that the war on drugs certainly had devastating consequences. A positive to come from it is that a judge, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know his or her name, but a judge in 1989 said, we need to do something different. Let's change the model from incarceration to treatment. And we're not talking about violent offenders. If an individual, you know, we're talking about aggravated assault and rape, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about individuals who tended to have nonviolent histories. Their issue was addiction. And they kept on getting arrested for using drugs. And the issue was that drugs were illegal, right? Um, so yes, there's no doubt that the war on drugs, in my opinion, and what I've kind of documented in my dissertation, uh, led to the development of drug courts. And it is, it is that drug courts are extremely positive thing. They are criminal justice reform. When, it, when we're talking about criminal justice reform for individuals who have addictions and or mental health disorders. Uh, drug courts, and of course this number is always changing, in the good way it's going up, but there's about 4,000 treatment courts drug courts, mental health courts, veterans courts throughout the country, but they're also in U.S. territories. They're also international. They're in Ireland, they're in Canada, they're in Jamaica. Uh, so you can find them. And to go from one to 4,000 in 30 years is actually really good progress. If anything, the main issues with drug courts is we don't have enough to serve everyone who has addictions and mental health disorders. And then the other issue is drug courts. And I keep on emphasizing this point, not all, but many, and there's a strong trend, are not providing best practices to participants who are African-American. And this is a very serious issue because if we don't change our game plan, if we don't fix this problem, and this is a problem, racial disparities in, in many outcomes, but I focus on graduation rates, we, drug courts, will be viewed 
as just another extension of a historically oppressive criminal justice system. What I can say is we have key stakeholders in the drug court movement. One of them is the NADCP, the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. I do consulting work for them and I commend them because they were the first, they're the leaders of the drug court movement. They were the first to say, this is a problem. We're not wiping it under the carpet. We need to address this issue of why African-Americans are graduating less than white participants. And not only have they addressed it, they have, you know, put their services <laughs> to that statement, meaning they, they do many uh, great, great works, but they teach like an equity and inclusion curriculum uh, for drug courts. And it's free. Right. I mean, I'm sure they're getting funded by the federal government. I don't know the funding, but, but courts can apply to get equity and inclusion training each year. NADCP does a conference where seven, eight thousand people across the world come to focus on criminal justice reform. But here's the key thing. An important thing is. Criminal justice systems, not just educational systems have done this, too, but I'm not, that's beyond my, my area of it. criminal justice systems for years, decades, historically have seen oppression, discrimination, racism, hate within their systems, disparities in their systems. And many criminal justice systems have just ignored it. They've wiped it under the carpet. The drug court movement has not, they said this is a serious problem and we love our drug court movement because drug courts work, no doubt about it. But we will not stop until there are equal outcomes for everyone. So whether you're male or female, we want you graduating at equal rates. Black, white, or brown, we want you graduating at equal rates. Here's the key thing. Besides the fact that we have not wiped it under the carpet, good, we need to address it. There are two ways of addressing this problem. And again, the problem is African-Americans in some programs graduate less. They have poorer outcomes than their white counterparts in some treatment courts. Here's the key thing. You can view this problem in two ways. Others can say, well, what's going on with African-Americans? What's wrong with African-Americans? Why aren't African-Americans doing well in the program? Or you can view it this way. What's going on with us, the provider, in how we serve African-Americans? See, those are two different lenses of how to address this problem. The one is what I would call an oppressive lens. It certainly would be an anti-social work lens. Is what's wrong with African-Americans? That would be, again, what I call an anti-social work lens. And it's not going to lead us anywhere productive from a research standpoint. Because the problem doesn't lie with African-Americans. I approach my research as social workers. We approach our research as what is going on within the system in how they serve African-Americans. And that's a vastly different approach from what other scientists, researchers have done in the past in addressing criminal justice reform issues. It's always been what's wrong with that group? What's the problem with that group? As compared to saying, huh, 
It actually may be how we are providing services to a particular population. And I think that that's the key thing that is that is going to continue moving us forward in eliminating racial disparities in outcomes. Now, you have a broad frame of reference in regards to social work. In the Black community, a popular saying is that the white man's ice is colder than the Black man's ice. Mm, You work at an HBCU and have vast experience researching Black people in the drug courts and, you know, in the outcomes. What are your thoughts on how Black people respond to Black social workers as opposed to white social workers? So in my, and I'll start with, with my research. What I have found is that in some treatment courts, African-Americans have said, and again, I interview them, either I do focus groups or individual interviews and say, how can this program be improved? Some African-American participants would say, we wish we had more people in the program that look like us. African-American participants, we wish there were more African-American participants, staff, judges, addiction and mental health counselors. And not once, again, in my experience, certainly as, as a white man, did they say, they're not saying white people can't help us. They're saying, we do wish though, we know this area is a pretty diverse area and there's a lot of African-Americans in this area, but we don't see them represented in this program. That in itself is disempowering. Um, And we have found that treatment courts that have an equal representation of say African-American participants and staff tend to produce better outcomes. And what I mean, let's just say we look and I, and I can do some research, say your treatment court should be 50% white and 50% black. And then we actually go to the treatment court and there's about 50% white participants, 50% black participants. And, and the, the racial makeup of staff, judges, treatment providers, probation officers is pretty diverse. There's something about that. We don't know yet. Certainly I can speak to, to camaraderie, right? Or just the sheer fact that what some participants have said to me of, we wish there was more people in the program that looked like us. That in itself tends to lead to positive outcomes. Meaning I've gone to programs where it's 50% white, 50% black. It should be that way to be representative of the arrest population of the community. And there I say, wow, across graduation rates, African-Americans are graduating at 55% and so are white participants. So through my research, first, you know, as I I share there, that there tends to be a value of, again, camaraderie, or simply put, as African-American participants have shared with me in different courts throughout this country, if you want to improve the drug court, find out why there aren't more African-Americans in the program, because I know they're getting arrested in our community. I know they're represented in our community. In regards to social work as a whole, what I have found 
is that certainly the age of a social worker, our race, our mannerisms, our expertise, our confidence, our training, all of that matters. The most valuable skill that you can have as a social worker is kindness. That brotherly and sisterly love I spoke about earlier, compassion, empathy, humbleness, curiosity, and being genuine. And what I mean by that is I've worked with patients and I've been doing counseling and I still do it part-time, 20 years. I've had patients say, you know what? I, I really don't want to work with, with, with a man. Can you refer me to a female therapist? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd really like to work with the African-American woman. Do you have one? Could you make a referral there? Absolutely. See, the clients are patients the individuals we work with, they are the experts of their own life, not us as social workers ever. And I tell my students, if you give them a safe, confidential, compassionate environment for them to open up, for them to make behavioral changes, for them to heal from whatever they need to heal from, that is, and I make this number up, but that's 80% of counseling providing a safe, compassionate place for people to change. Now, in no way do I say that. I do believe strongly that's it. What, what, if you want to work with anyone, regardless of their race, their history, the, the issue or problem they're experiencing in their life, provide a safe, non-judgmental, confidential, loving environment for them to change. That's key. And understand yeah, I tell patients or my students, if a patient says, hey, I don't want to work with you. I want to work with someone else. It's okay. We should praise that they're speaking up and being assertive. And I say that as I've been doing it for two decades, I have done therapy groups for women who have histories of trauma. And I go in as a social worker. All the patients in the group are women who have a history of trauma. I'm not a woman. I don't have a history of trauma. Quite frankly, don't know much about being a woman. I know quite a bit about trauma. And I go in, I'm genuine about that, and emphasize social work, compassion, empathy, providing that non-judgmental environment. When I was in Indiana, I did a group. And the group was for African-American men. And the theme was the relationship between historical trauma, historical racism, and addiction. I went into that group as a white man, knowing very little about racism and historical trauma and its connection with addiction. But I knew a lot about addiction, but I knew a lot about how to provide a genuine environment for people to share their stories. Now, again, I share this as, hey, I'm a white man working with women with trauma. I'm a white man working with African-American men who are in the criminal justice system talking about addiction and historical trauma. In no way am I minimizing the impact of race on this. Because certainly if someone says, and I've seen it in my research, I want to go to counseling, but I would just feel more comfortable 
working with another black man. We say, thank, thank you for being open and honest. You know you best. And if that's what provides that comfort, that's what you want. If we're able to make that referral and set that up, that's what we do. The, the other thing that I emphasize in my, my, my teaching and work with students is that certainly the color of our skin, we're not colorblind. We're aware of it. And we can talk about it. But when we talk about in social work, the idea of diversity, and trust me, I, I was caught up in this for many years. When we think about diversity, we think black or white. Diversity is certainly your race. It's your sex. It's your gender. It's where you grew up. It's your life experience. It's how you spend your weekends. It's the books that you read. Diversity is every life experience we bring to the table. And our job as social workers is to provide that, again, that safe environment for patients to share their story. And I truly believe, and, and again, I say it kind of broadly, 80% of the therapeutic environment is providing that, that non-judgmental compassion and empathy. That's 80%. You make a patient, a family feel safe where they can talk. And they're heard. 20% is the skill and knowledge base that you have. Because I've had patients, John, you're a great therapist, man. I've changed and I'm clean for six months and I'm in recovery. And man, I thank you. And in my head, I'm like, I really didn't even do anything. Besides, listen, validate how you feel. And provide maybe some advice or support along the way. But I say... You take the credit. You did the hard work for this. So, so I hope that I hope that, that kind of answered your question that we, we aren't. I remember when I started in the field, I went to some training. That's a long time ago, but it was about being colorblind. Like that was actually the theme back in the day with like addiction ethics. Whether someone's black or white, male, we're, we're blind to that. We treat everyone equal. And I say, we are absolutely not blind. We want to be aware of who we are, our experiences, and talk about it and embrace it. Our diversity is cool. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's good to learn people's different experiences. And this requires, though, us to have, we got to have real conversations. You, you, you Todd, I'm sure you've heard and, and we've heard people say, Implicit bias, and I go to try, I see it on the news every day, and police officers, implicit bias, and implicit bias, implicit bias. And I, what are we talking about? Like, like, implicit bias is real, don't get me wrong, it exists. But what are we talking about? In order for us to address implicit bias, we must first reflect on our own life experiences that have implicitly, unintentionally created oppression in our own thoughts and in our own hearts. And so students and I say, okay, here's implicit bias. Now let's have, again, this is at Morgan State University. Let's have a real conversation about it. And the story I share, and this, sometimes people are taken back. This is implicit bias, 
when I grew up and I went from a white suburban community where I went to grade school to then I went to high school in the city of Harrisburg, an urban community where I went from an all white grade school, I mean, 99.9% white to a high school that was mostly, you know, mixed black and white. I was now exposed in my first time to an urban culture. I was actually kind of intrigued by it and, and just, I, I found a lot of love and, and really enjoyed the city. But in high school, remember I shared earlier, I had kind of a misspent youth. I got in lots of trouble and, you know, drugs, alcohol, stuff like that, getting get in trouble. My, and, and this speaks to implicit bias. My mom would say to me, John, John, when you go down to the city, stay away from that neighborhood. And there was a neighborhood. John, John, if you're going down, hang out with your friends, don't go to that neighborhood. And the neighborhood that she was referencing was a neighborhood. She didn't want me going there because there was a high crime rate and lots of drugs. So to this day, I would say to my daughters, Morgan and Carly, be careful if you go to that neighborhood. I prefer if you don't have to stay away from that neighborhood, there's a high crime rate. So my mom, being a great mom, as Parents would do, John, John, stay away from that neighborhood. Stay away from that neighborhood. You're going out with your friends. I don't want you going in that neighborhood. Okay. Well, eventually, as I'm growing up, my mom giving a positive message. Hey, son, I love you. I want you to be safe. Stay away from that neighborhood because there's a high crime rate. Eventually, though, that was the black community. And as I got older, as a young man in high school, my mom doesn't want me going there. But as I got older, the implicit mind can say, I got a message as a young man saying, don't go to this neighborhood because there's a high crime rate and there's lots of drug use. And then as I got older, associated that with African-Americans that is where implicit bias is developed. And, and you know, I've, I share this with students and students will say, but your mom was doing the right thing. I wouldn't want my kids going to a neighborhood that has problems. I said, oh yeah, implicit bias isn't, it's implicit. It can be developed with all the good intentions in mind. But it's not until we reflect and say, wow, if I did not take this implicit bias, because my mom didn't say, don't go to the neighborhood because it's the black community. She never said that. Don't go to the neighborhood. She would say, there's lots of trouble there. Lots of crime there. We don't want you getting in trouble anymore. You got no problems with the law. But eventually I associate implicitly crime, drug use, violence with African-Americans. That's implicit bias. And sometimes say, damn, John, that's real. Well, implicit bias is real. And we have to have the conversations because if we just say implicit bias, don't project your implicit biases in counseling. Don't be aware of your implicit biases in social work. If we don't have a real conversation about what implicit biases are, it's going to go over people's head. We have, to, we have to help students, social workers, all of us, 
dig deep, explore and be real and figure out what they may be because when they're no longer implicit, they become explicit. We're aware of them. And when we're aware of them is when we can do something about it, such as me sharing the story with you today. Do have I historically in my life because of that implicit bias, implicitly I associated African-American communities with higher crime rates and violence and drug use because of a message I got as a child that is real. Being able to have conversations about it is what takes the, say, implicit power away from it. And so when I when we talk about diversity, that being one example, you know, me, I'm, I'm, I'm a white male, two daughters, I'm Catholic, right? We are 43, we have all these things, but I also have these experiences as a child that are positive. I was really intrigued by urban communities, by the city of Harrisburg, when I went from a white suburb to a city. I believe that feeling intrigued um, and wanting to learn more has helped me be where I'm at today. But it also has allowed me to be real and genuine. Because honestly, I don't think two years ago when I was at Indiana University, and again, this, I love Indiana University. I think I've said that a lot. And I want, it was had nothing to do with the university. It had to do with my comfort level. I wasn't having real conversations about race. I was talking about implicit bias and moving on. Now at Morgan State University, and I thank the students, not me, they've created an environment to say, hey, John, you, you can, we're real. You can be real. <laughs> we all have these biases and experiences and, and oppressive, unintentionally oppressive messages or stereotypes that we grew up with, or maybe we're even still exposed to. Let's take the power away from it by talking about it. And again, that speaks to the power of what I say as an HBCU. Two years ago, three years ago, when I was at my last university, I did not have this conversation. Now I have this conversation where I can say, let me give you one example of many in my life of where implicit biases can come from. As, as much as you've gotten from your students and as much as you've gotten for H, from HBCUs, I'm pretty sure that they are thankful that they have a professor like you that can explain something like implicit bias in a way that I've never heard it explained before. And it really just even hit home for a 41 year old man like me mm -hmm. after all these years. And when I was in high school, I was in a group called SCORE, the student group on race relations. And I had never heard implicit bias explained like that. So thank you for that explanation. Yeah, absolutely. So I read somewhere that oftentimes courts give breaks to people that have mental health issues or were under the influence while they were committing a crime. Then I read that blacks were given breaks disproportionately to white people at something like a 90 percent rate, like white people were given more breaks. Speak to that in your experiencing and research. So the, the treatment court movement and, and which my research is mainly focused on is it is designed to treat both, although it's called a drug court, 
It's designed to treat both addiction and mental health disorders because we know about half of people who have a diagnosed substance use disorder addiction also have a major mental health issue, most commonly depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, three of the, the most common. And so the treatment court movement is prepared um, for that. Now, when it comes to disproportionality in services, what I have found is that I travel the country and I meet with drug court participants and I basically ask them, you know, give me the good, bad, and the ugly of the program. What's working so we can do more of it? What's not working so we can revise that? What services do you need that you don't have so we can add that? And there's a couple things that we found in service. Now, this will speak to, to mental health and addiction services that we found. So I, I interview, I don't just interview African-Americans, I interview all participants, but then I can, I can say, here's all the, the findings from white participants, here's all the findings from African-Americans, and we can compare and contrast it. One of the things, and, and, and I hope that, that this speaks to, to your question, is that in drug courts and other treatment courts, it is common for the program to require participants to attend Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, or what they call other 12-step meetings as part of the program. So they say, hey, you, you know, we're not, you're not incarcerated, but you must do counseling. In addition to counseling, you must go to these recovery support groups. Also help you with education, employment, et cetera. One of the major differences that I saw in say differences in services is that white participants have said in this program, we're required to go to AA or NA meetings. We're fine with that, right? And, and some were, you know, they really loved them. Others didn't really care for them, but they didn't mind going. Conversely though, African-American participants said, we have to go to AA meetings, but we find little value in them. And we need recovery support, but we tend to find it in more natural support systems in our life as compared to a mandated support system such as AA or NA. So programs are mandating, not all, but are, some drug courts are mandating participants to attend AA or NA meetings. And African-American participants are saying, we would really prefer natural supports in our life. And, and I'll take a moment and I'll actually read a quote. And this is from, from one of my, my research studies that I think highlights this theme. And I'll start to quote now. In my culture, you don't talk about your personal problems in public. At these AA and NA meetings, these people are talking about how they were abused as a child and how they tried to kill themselves. I can't relate. I have problems, but I don't share them there. I share them with my family. End of quote. 
that one quote, that is one of many quotes, throughout the country, so this guy, meet with African-Americans in Texas, meet with them in Indiana, California, Pennsylvania, other states. African-American participants, and I'm not generalizing the African-Americans as a whole. I'm, I can only, in my research, I can only generalize back to who I met with. Right? So, so when I say African-Americans, I'm not speaking African-Americans as a whole or even all African-Americans in drug court. African-Americans have said, we need recovery support system to help us on our path to mental health recovery and addiction recovery. But they make us go to AA and NA meetings and as this quote, this was an African-American man from Texas said, in my culture, we don't air our dirty laundry in public. We got lots of dirty laundry and we'll air it. But African-Americans as compared to white participants tended to share their personal problems with priests, pastors, family members, Friends, an African-American young man from Gary, Indiana, said to me, his basketball league, he was on a basketball rec league. He went there three times a week. He said, you want to know what helps me stay clean and sober? Want to know what helps me achieve addiction recovery? I play basketball three days a week, and I feel great. But some drug courts have said, no, no, that, that doesn't count. You meeting with your priest and pastor, that doesn't count. You going in a basketball league? No, that doesn't count. You must go to AA and NA meetings. And that's your path to recovery. If, if I can, I do want to share one more quote to, to, to highlight this point, because I've, I've been doing research for 10 years, and what I will tell you, this is my favorite quote of all time, speaking to this issue. So again, if we sit back and say, why... Do racial disparities where African-Americans graduate less than white participants exist in some programs? One of many findings, but one would be we, meaning program, may not be meeting the individualized needs of some African-American participants. And by individualized needs, I mean sitting back and just listening. Hey, it's important to have a support system as part of your recovery. You are the expert of your own life. What does your recovery support system look like? I do a basketball league three times a week. Sounds good. Continue doing that basketball league. That seems healthy. If it helps you stay clean, I don't know if it does. You're the expert. You tell me it does. It does. But courts have said, you can do your basketball league, but that doesn't count. You still must go to AA meetings. So an African-American woman in Indiana shared this with me. I said, Tell me about AA. I go to AA and NA, it's, it's fine, but I wish the court accepted these natural support systems. It's my favorite quote from an African-American woman in Indiana. I'll start the quote. When I was getting high, I didn't care about how I looked. I was a mess, sometimes didn't shower for a few days and never did my hair and nails. Once I got clean, I started taking care of myself better. Every week I get my hair and nails done. And when I leave there, I feel great. My beautician is like my counselor. She hears all my problems and gives me advice. She is a major part of my recovery. And she knows I am in drug court and the challenges I face. The court makes us go to 
NA meetings each week, but I find getting my hair and nails done is much more helpful. NA meetings can't make me feel beautiful. And when I feel beautiful, I am less likely to relapse and more likely to complete drug court. End of quote. Wow. So to, to, to just summarize kind of back to your question, when we're talking about addiction and mental health recovery and differences in services, one of the many factors that I have found to contribute to drug courts not providing best practices to African-Americans is we're not listening. We are dictating to African-Americans, you must go to AA and NA meetings, and that's the path to recovery. Well, you know what that message sends? We're the experts of your life, and we aren't. As compared to saying, you must have a recovery support system as part of this program. And quite frankly, we'll give you options. You can go to an AA meeting if you want, NA. But we don't know what your recovery support system should be like because you're the expert of your life. And we're going to support you. But you must have one. And all we need you to do is tell us what that may be. So if you say, I go to counseling, because as part of the program, you must do therapy counseling. And in addition to counseling, your support system is your beautician then your support system is your beautician. African-American participants, and again, generalizing just back to my sample, have said, if you want to provide better services to African-Americans in your treatment courts, if you want to address the issue of racial disparities in graduation rates, allow us to utilize these natural support systems in our life and not ones that are dictated or mandated to us because AA and NA, they're fine. But meeting with my pastor, playing in my basketball league, getting my hair and nails done and feeling beautiful. That's what helps me stay clean and sober. The only other point that I'll make or, or, or an additional point, disparities or differences in services. It is common in the addiction world to use the word addict or alcoholic. And we even see that within the AA or NA culture. And a lot of times, and, and I want to emphasize this point, when people hear me talk about AA and NA, they say, oh, you, you're, you're, you're bashing them. You're, 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 you're saying they're not effective. No, AA and NA have been around since the 1930s. They're a free peer-led recovery support group. They're actually amazing. What I'm saying is they ain't for everyone, <laughs> right? AA and NA are wonderful programs. They ain't for everyone. But particularly within the AA culture, you will hear people say, hi, my name's John and I'm an addict. And if someone chooses to identify themselves as an addict and that's their choice, nothing wrong with that. Quite frankly, I don't care what you identify yourself with, right? What I have found in interviewing and comparing and contrasting African-Americans and white participants who are getting addiction treatment is that African-Americans in particular have said, we reject that label. I met with a young African-American man in Texas once, and I'll use a, just a, a fake name, but 
say Jeremy. And he put it this way, and I'm not quoting verbatim. I don't have his quote handy, but my name's Jeremy. And when I go to group therapy, my counselor, if she wants a response from me, she's going to call me Jeremy. My grandma raised me and she said, I'm Jeremy. And that I should never accept labels, stigmas, stereotypes. I should speak up against anyone who tries to put a label on me. And I will do that. What I have found in the treatment court world, and this is not unique to treatment courts, right? This is in the addiction world. We are too quick and unthoughtful in just throwing the word addict or alcoholic out there. And while we may throw it out without bad intention, I have found that white participants in treatment court, they tend to accept it, right? Or say, oh yeah, I go to group. They say, my name's John and I'm an addict. I, I don't, it's insignificant. They don't say they like the label. They certainly don't speak against it. White participants in my research tend to just not care, right? African-Americans, again, these are not a single court. These are a variety of courts throughout the country have consistently said, if you want me to respond well to treatment, we would appreciate judges, the counselors, probation officers, those in charge to identify me by my name and not label me as an addict. And, and I just, since I have it up, I'll read just one quote to highlight this. Again, one of many, I'll start the quote. I have no respect for the counselors because they judge us and label us addicts. One of the counselors even told me that he would not move me to the next phase of treatment until I admit I am an addict and in denial or something like that. I see the word addict as a derogatory term, and I will not subject myself to their judgments and labels, period, or end of quote. That's one of many quotes to say African-Americans in particular reject the label of addict or alcoholic. And again, we're not generalizing to all. I work with many African-American participants throughout my counseling career. You know, I'm, I'm very comfortable saying my name's John and I'm an addict. Great. It's about giving people choice, right? It's when we dictate everyone must go to AA and NA that we exacerbate the problem of racial disparities and outcomes. It's when we say, no, you're an addict. And, and it's a good term. And we tell people it's a good term. Yet in their belief, no, it's derogatory and labeling and stigmatizing and judgmental. But no, you're an addict. It's okay. It's when we start to project our values onto people that problems exist in services, such as graduation rates. And of course, these quotes I shared, they're one of many, right? We, we, we could spend hours, Todd, talking uh, about, about the examples. Um, and this goes back. Todd, do I have a moment for just one more example on, on this? Absolutely. We're again talking about kind of disproportionality, differences in services. White participants are quite okay going to AA or NA meetings. Their finding is really it's not that they love them. It's not that they hate them. It's really insignificant. African-Americans have said, hey, we, 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 we've, we've went to AA or NA. There's some benefit. But if you really want to recover support system, let's have natural supports in our life. 
priest, pastor, family, friends, a beautician, a basketball league, whatever, an art class, doesn't matter. African-Americans, as compared to their white counterparts, have, have largely rejected labels such as addict or alcoholic. And of course, in just thinking about the labels and historical oppression that has been placed on African-Americans throughout the history of our country, it's not surprising that Jeremy, as I said, was raised by his grandma and said, you're Jeremy. You don't accept any labels. People can call you Jeremy. The other example, and this kind of goes back to this idea of implicit bias, is this is when I was working in Texas. And I've worked in drug courts doing counseling for many years, too. And when a participant, a drug court participant, has a violation, so they test positive for a drug, they violated the conditions, they have to go up in front of the judge and talk about it. A, a young white man tested positive, I forget, but we'll just say marijuana, went up in front of the judge. And the judge said, tell me, why did you use marijuana? It's a young white man. He said, well, I was having a bad day and, and, and you know, I got fired from my job and I'm fighting with my girlfriend and just things were so bad that um, I just got too stressed and I decided to get high. Your Honor, I'm so sorry. There was just too much going on in my life, and, and it made me get high. And the judge said to the young white man, well, I appreciate you being open and honest with me. And for your sanction, we're going to continue drug testing you, but your sanction is you must do community service. Have a seat and have a good evening. His sanction was community service. Now, as a clinical social worker, I'm sitting back. And observing this, and I'm thinking, I'm fine with that outcome, community service, and let's treat, right? He relapsed. But he really didn't take accountability for his actions. He blamed it on the stress. And I'm not saying, of course, stress, arguments with, with, with your significant other. There are many factors that can lead to relapse. It can be contributed to it. But he really didn't take ownership of it. He blamed it on these external stressors. Right after him, I witnessed this with my own eyes. A young black man came up, same issue, tested positive for marijuana. The judge said, young man, why did you test positive for marijuana? The young black man said to the judge, your honor, I respect you, so I'm not gonna lie. I got high because I like getting high. I was hoping you wouldn't catch me, but you did. I take accountability for it. I know there's a sanction and I'm here to accept consequences for my action. I'm sitting there internally, like I say, having a party in my head, meaning finally we have someone who's being open and honest and real. Because he, he wanted to. He tried to beat the system, as everyone does who chooses to get high in the criminal justice system and test positive. The judge's responses to the young black man was, how dare you be so blunt and brazen in my courtroom? Sheriffs put him in jail. Wow. And the sheriffs came, put this young black man in handcuffs, and he went to jail, to the county prison. Wow. And I said, this is the problem with the system. And, and this isn't me observing. I worked in this court. 
Young white man, positive for weed. Young black man, positive for weed. Young white man comes up with every excuse under the world about why it happened. And, and I'm not even dismissing those excuses. If indeed he was stressed at job and he was arguing with his girlfriend, there's many things that are associated. The young black man comes up and just, I'm going to be honest with you. I got high just like everyone else who's got high before you. But the judge saw his honesty, candidness as a sign of disrespect. Wow. That perhaps if it was a white man in front of him saying the same thing, maybe that judge would not have seen it as disrespect. Because as a clinical social worker, again, I was like, I got to say this sarcastically, but I guess truthfully, in my head, I was like, oh, my, thank goodness I can work with this. He tried to beat the system. That's what he, he, he has a right to do. That it's his life. He got caught. There's a consequence. Let's work through it. Yeah. Behavioral therapy. You do behavior. Sometimes there's a positive reward consequence. But that in itself. Now, what was truly going on in the, the judge's mindset? Of course, I can't speak to that. But to me, I witnessed that. And again, that's one of many examples I can give of potential disparity differences in how services are provided. And as you shared earlier in our discussion, a disparity where African-American participants are getting more punitive consequences than white participants. Because you know what happened? Every African-American participant in the audience, and this was a very large drug court, I mean, 200 participants, right? They sat back and they said, oh, this program ain't for us. We better not just be honest with the judge. Next time something happens, we better just create a fluffy story of excuses because apparently that leads to a less punitive outcome. And, then, and when I when I did research on that court, that was what they said. Hey, we go to court every week and we watch people, African-Americans, we watch people who look like us get punished harsher than white participants. And I witnessed it with my own eyes. That's one of many examples. Wow. Wow. How important is police familiarity and training with different ethnicities in how they respond to situations? Have you seen any evidence that supports theories that allude to the fact that cultural insens insensitivity leads to negative responses and outcomes? So what I see as kind of like the important research on this topic is, is emerging now because it goes back to implicit bias. What do we really mean by that? And, and again, earlier I shared an example. So other people can sit back and hopefully feel comfortable sharing their examples to their life. Then also the idea of, you know, cultural competency. What do we mean by that? Cultural insensitivity. What do we mean by that? And so we can break it down kind of in the research or say, you know, we can title, I think in one of my articles, I called it something like cultural insensitivity. Well, if you are forcing the word addict or alcoholic, you are 
creating a norm where your participants must identify themselves as an addict or therefore they're not making progress. That may be culturally incompetent practice for African-Americans based on, on our findings. So here's my thoughts on this. The real research about implicit bias and what do we mean by cultural insensitivity and, and cultural sensitivity, it's emerging because I don't think we've defined it yet. I do the equity and inclusion training for the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. And when I say I do it, I'm one of many faculty. And part of the curriculum is addressing cultural competency, cultural insensitivity, implicit bias. The moment that we use those words, implicit bias, privilege, in cultural insensitivity, what it tends to do is create defensiveness in people where they're not wanting, they've checked out. And what I've found, and this is strictly from my experience, the defensiveness tends to come from people who look like me. And here would be an example of that. And, 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 and I know that your question tied into policing, right? When it comes to policing, we need to be able to have real conversations about implicit bias where police officers are taken through a process where they can actually identify their implicit biases. Like I did an implicit bias that I related uh, when I was growing up. I talked about earlier. We're not doing that, in my experience. We're going to police stations and saying, yeah, we're going to do a training on cultural competency. And it's artificial. It's vague. It's not real. It's not specific. And people actually leave there worse off, more defensive than when they came into the training. I traveled the country. I was in Seattle a couple months ago. I'll be in New Northern New York. In March, I'll be in Cleveland next month, February, uh, Atlanta later in the year. I travel the country and I present my research. I talk about race in treatment courts. And I had my girlfriend with me for the very first training. And I said to her, watch, I'm going to do a presentation on race. I'm going to talk about the African-American experience in treatment court through the words of African-Americans. And we're going to talk real about cultural competency and cultural, you know, uh, incompetence and implicit bias. And I said to her, I said, watch, watch what's going to happen. Cause it always happens after I'm done talking. Thank you all for attending. I'll be here afterwards. If we want to process anything or you have any questions. And I told my girlfriend this, watch what's going to happen. At the end, you're going to see two groups. And they're going to be segregated by race. You're going to see African-Americans here. And you're going to see white participants, attendees there. How do you know that? I've been doing it long enough. Just watch. After the training, just like it's happened many, many times before. African-American attendees, you know, professionals, those that work in criminal justice reform are coming up to me and saying, thank you. Thank you for doing this research. 
Thank you for talking about this issue. We, we attend cultural competency training, but it's artificial. You gave real examples. And I always tell them, well, give the credit to the participants. All I'm doing is sharing their words. I mean, let's thank the African-Americans that I interviewed throughout this country, because it's really it's them that are giving these examples. A group of African-American attendees are saying, thank you for finally doing this. We've been talking to our court administration for a while about these issues, mandating AA meetings, using the word addict and alcoholic so freely it goes on deaf ears. Then I move to the other side. And this may even sound like I'm exaggerating. It, it is when I it is an, an, I'm talking about near fact of segregation, African-Americans and white. The white attendees are coming up and they're defending the work that they do because they saw the honest, real lived experiences of African-Americans as a threat to them. Wow. And they defend their work and dismiss the lived experiences of African-Americans, meaning by, by challenging, well, they said they didn't go to AA meetings. Well, maybe they just didn't go to the right AA meetings. Well, I don't know. Maybe they just want natural support systems in their life and they don't want AA meetings or even better yet options. Give them options. All participants, white, black, brand doesn't matter. So I, I, when I say we have emerging research, there's so much research and literature out there about cultural competency, implicit bias. I've read a lot of it. And then honestly, I've stopped reading it because I don't see it as getting to the real issue. Meaning if you're going to teach about implicit bias, but not help people identify their own implicit biases and then provide a safe environment for them to share it, we may cause more harm than good. Because those that become defensive with those terms, privilege, bias, right, may leave with more guards up. More guards up is just going to push that bias deeper down in the unconscious mind. Hence, more harm may, may be done. And I've done it with my own trainings that I've, I've, I've met with some people. And, and you know, I'm like, man, I, I, I really think... By them attending this training, it's caused more harm than good because they absolutely are not open to what African-Americans had to say. Now, trust me, I'm talking about a small, rare group of attendees. I believe all criminal justice reform advocates who attend my trainings and discussions, they are open and they want to learn something. But always there's a small group, African-Americans. John, thank you. We've been wanting to hear this. We see it. Thank you for finally presenting this research. And then a small group, which tends to be of white attendees, defensive, defending their work, challenging words like cultural competency, because they're just not willing to take a very real, honest look at it. And in some sense, I may have been in the same boat when I was at my last university. I was not, I was aware of my implicit biases, but I was not willing to have an open, honest conversation with students to model it for them. Now, now I am. And again, I tie that back. The, you don't have an option. 
And this is a great thing at Morgan State University. You better be real. You better be honest. You better be ready to have good conversations about every issue that I have experienced, students have experienced, or that we are aware of as it relates to urban communities and race. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. That was that, that was good. That, that was good. Now I spent a good amount of time thinking about nature and nurture. And I think about it a lot athletically because I see so many second generation athletes in the NFL and the NBA. In your research, what have you seen that alludes to nature and or nurture with people that have mental health issues and or drug problems? Are there any direct correlations to family history, economic circumstances, education level attained? Speak to that a bit. So. Yes, there is absolutely a direct correlation between all of those factors that you've mentioned, education, uh, the neighborhood and environment you grew up in, whether your, your parents or guardians are incarcerated, not incarcerated, whether they use drugs, didn't use drugs. Uh, your, the environment plays a key role in addiction, mental health, and involvement in the criminal justice system. It is no doubt a mix of nature and nurture. So biologically, we know that some people are more likely to develop the disease, the brain disease of addiction than others. So some people biologically, genetically, they are more likely to become dependent on drugs where other people biologically and genetically, in some essence, they seem like immune to becoming dependent on drugs. And what I mean by that, I'm not talking, there are some people that they develop a tolerance to drug use, meaning I used to drink six beers to get the buzz, to get the euphoria, now I need eight, 10, 12 beers. I need more of the drug to get the desired effect. I used to use three Oxycontin to get high. Now I've developed a tolerance to get the same high, I need six. Tolerance is a symptom of the brain disease of addiction. It's someone's brain that their body, and certainly more complex than this, but that they become dependent on drugs. There's other folks who they can use drugs and they can use three Oxycontin. And every time they use three Oxycontin, they get the euphoria, the high, the effect they're looking for. They never develop a tolerance and five years have passed and they're still using three. Now, don't get me wrong. They're using three Oxycontin. You can get arrested. You could still get an overdose and die. You could still have bad consequences. We know with certainty now that there's absolutely a biological component, genetic component, that some people are more predisposed to developing the disease of addiction, problematic drug use, as compared to others. Now, when it comes to nurture, nurturing can either exacerbate the problem or be a protective factor in the problem. Okay? So here would be one example. The earlier you use drugs, the younger you are, the more likely you are to develop a substance use disorder addiction later in life than if you start using drugs later. So 
if your first experience with drug, with, with getting drunk, getting high, is at 14, you are more likely to develop a problematic addiction later on in life as compared to someone who didn't get uh, high or get drunk or use their first drug until the age of 18. So from, from a standpoint, we would say people are going to use drugs and alcohol. They are. I mean, it's always been part of our society. Our job is certainly to, to prevent it. And then our secondary job, if we can't prevent it, is to delay it. Meaning the later you start using drugs, the better off. Okay. So we know there's a genetic biological component, but there's also the societal component or the, the um, nurturing component of your exposure to drugs. Some 14-year-olds aren't smoking marijuana because they just never seen it. Right. But if you grow up in an environment, whether it's your household where marijuana is uh, readily available and other people use it, you may have access to it at a younger age. When it comes also to societal factors, we talk about like in social work, and it's not just social work, but we, but like so social learning theory. What we witness and learn in our childhood and our developmental years, we will tend to model or mimic as we grow throughout life. And so if we grow up in an environment, again, whether it's a friend group, could be witnessing parents, neighborhoods, whatever the case may be, where drugs are readily available, where they're normalized, we see that as a normal experience. Hence, we're more likely to use drugs um, as, as we continue on in life. So there's definitely a nature and nurture component to it. Um, and many factors are associated with it. We know that addiction, and not all, but most mental illnesses do not discriminate based on race. So whether you are white, black, brown, we do know that you are equally as likely to have an addiction. However, white patients, participants are more likely to seek and receive treatment than African-Americans. And that, while it may sound like a correlation with race, is more of an economic barrier. What we know is that those that are more you know, wealthy, that have more economic resources, are more likely to seek treatment for addiction and mental health as compared to those uh, that have less economic resources. And we see that in, in my research in drug court. There's no doubt that we say, hey, in this program, 30% of African-Americans graduated, 60% of white participants. So there's a disparity in graduation rates. And we say, okay, well, let, let's dig deep. Let's take a look at the white participants and compare them to the African-American participants. And we see that white participants were more likely to have at least a high school diploma um, or higher. They had more uh, economic, they had more wealth. They had more family support. So there are so many factors associated with that nurture component of it. Um, 
But yes, they are all correlated, meaning the more education you have, the more likely you are to be able to get treatment. The more wealth you have, the more likely you are to be able to get treatment. The later you're exposed to drugs, the less likely you are to develop an addiction throughout life. Um, and then at the same time, some of these like schizophrenia, for example, is for the most part, biologically, it's inevitable. And what I mean is if, if you are predisposed to develop schizophrenia, right, there are many factors that can lead to early onset of schizophrenia, right? But you could have a great environment, a great nurturing environment. But if you're predisposed to, to have schizophrenia and develop symptoms, you know, that will happen. And no matter how great the nurturing environment is, it certainly can help with getting treatment and recovery for it, right? But there's some mental illnesses that are you know, predisposed that if, if you're going to develop it, you're going to develop the symptoms. Right. It makes sense. How far have you gotten on your mission to eliminate racial and ethnic disparities in criminal justice reform? Is it is it woven into the American fabric or is it something that can be eliminated? You know... It, it, it makes me think at times when I kind of, when I feel emotionally drained, beat up, feel like we're not making enough progress, that it seems, as you said, woven in the American fabric. When I go to a training and I simply talk about, I ask African-American participants their experiences in the program, and here's what they say. It's the truth because it's their truthful experience. And by some, again, it is a small handful, but but by some, it's you know, it's rejected, it's dismissed, they become defensive. It can be very disheartening. So there's a part of me of man, I've been working on this for 10 years. It's been a decade now, started in 2012. And my, my research agenda is pretty, it's, it's miles long, but it's only an inch wide. It's very specific. I want to, when you enter drug court, I want you to have equal chances of graduating, regardless of the color of your skin. That's it. That's my research. So at times it can be very disheartening to witness some of the things in treatment courts that I witnessed, to see the defensiveness in some that I've seen, or they don't want to address the issue. And then I have to sit back and then I have to just be honest. That's a few. The fact that you and I, Todd, we're having this conversation now gives me hope. The fact that an HBCU, Morgan State University, said, we are well aware of the research that John's doing and we would like him to work for us is a sign of hope. The fact that the leader, the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, has said, we ain't stopping till we fix this problem because we will not be an extension of a historically oppressive criminal justice system. We're here to reform the system, particularly for those that have addictions or mental illnesses. Provides me hope. The fact that the federal government there are large grants, very large grants from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration 
specific to addressing racial and ethnic disparities in treatment courts is promising. So we have a long way to go. I am hopeful that we've made good progress, and I think we have. But I tell you, Todd, at times when I do recent studies, I, I kind of get emotionally beat up. And like I said, you know, we did a study for a Midwestern court. I mean, it's it, it hasn't even been published yet. It's coming out in about two weeks. We just did it. That's 65 to 70 percent of white participants in, in these treatment courts in this Midwestern state graduated and every other race and ethnicity was less than 30. Boy, that's disheartening. But then I sit back and I say, wait, the fact that this Midwestern state allowed this research to happen, that's it. That's criminal justice reform. And the fact that they want to know the results and they are allowing us to publish it in an academic journal for all to read is actually a good thing. So I will say, I, I do, I, I get mixed feelings at times, and I'm sure it has to do with my own you know, stress levels and emotional well-being. Because as, as you shared, you know, Todd, you, you, the work that you do, you love, and it doesn't feel like a job. The same with me. I love hearing people's stories, hence what makes me a good counselor, and also a, a qualitative researcher where I hear people's stories. I love hearing people's stories and being able to share it. Um, but man, sometimes you you see as clear as can day, clear as day, the explicit bias and then the implicit biases that are in our system and the fact that they're there and we can talk about them, that's a good thing. If there's disparities in a, in a drug court, but we're willing to research it and talk about it, that's a good thing. The disparity ain't good, but now we know. It's the courts that don't want to talk about it that, that concern me and that get me, as you said, kind of disheartened into the woe, you know, as you said, kind of woven into our, what I would say, kind of particularly not that it's not woven into the American culture, but particularly the criminal justice culture. Because as social workers, we're asking for a paradigm shift. In drug courts, we're not here to catch you doing something wrong. We're here to catch you doing something right in the criminal justice system. They have sanctions in treatment courts, but they also have incentives. Let's praise you for doing well. And there's also a paradigm shift in treatment courts from we know what's best for you to quite frankly, we know the law and we have absolutely no idea what's best for you in treatment. Let us support you as you develop your treatment plan. So, you know, it's I, I'm not a, a man that's to, to stay on the fence, right? I, I am typically honest, open and can answer questions. But at times I think I get disheartened and I, I get disheartened and, and um like, man, I'm not sure we're doing it. I'm not sure we're getting the point across. And then and then I sit back and I say, no, we're, we're still talking about it. And, um, you know, the fact that we're talking about it's good. But also, you know, I worked under uh, Donald Trump's administration. Uh, I, I did consulting work that, that was funded 
by, by the, the, the office of the president. And, and I'm not, I don't get into politics too much. And, and, and this isn't anything, it, 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 well, there's a fact. Under Donald Trump's administration, he signed some executive order. Again, I'm not much into politics. I don't know all about it. But basically, federal employees could not use the word equity. And I read the executive order was in there. I was working on a project that was funded through the office of the president. And I had to do, say, an equity and inclusion training. And I was told before I went on, and I get it, I was told by people who are just following the rules, you can't use the word equity. Wow. See, that in itself is a policy that says, stop talking about this. That's disheartening. Yeah. Imagine doing an equity training and not saying the word equity. <laughs> and, 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 um, and again, th th that is, it's not, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm siding with the political position. It's a fact. Donald Trump signed an executive order, said you can't use the word equity. I'm sure there's many more details to that political executive order that I know. And, and, and so I'm not going to expect, but I know how it impacted me is, John, you can do this training. Don't say the word equity because it's funded by the federal government. That in itself um, is racism woven into our political system and to our American culture because it says, John, shut the hell up about this topic. Right. We don't want you talking about it. And as social workers, we say, oh, no, we, we are not going to get through this without having dialogue. Right. And they know that. So they try to silence it. Of course, when Biden administration took over, that executive order was released. And now I can say equity. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you working on now? So a couple, couple projects I'm working on is the NADCP, National Association of Drug Court Professionals, that I referenced many times, they have a journal called the Journal for Advancing Justice. So it's an academic journal and they publish articles related to criminal justice reform, particularly in addressing substance use disorders and mental health disorders. And it is a well-respected, it's a peer-reviewed journal. It's open access, so it's freely accessible to, to everyone, which is great. Um, and we publish articles that have a direct impact um, on the field in the hopes that people take the knowledge and then transfer it to the field. So I was recently um, promoted to associate editor of the journal. So, you know, particularly this year, I'll be spending a lot of time getting the next volume uh, ready for publication, which will be in mid 2024. Um, so th that's one of the key projects I'm working on is uh, being associate editor uh, for the Journal for Advancing Justice. Another one that I'm very excited about is I'm working with a company out of New York called CCI, the Center for Court Innovation. And they have recently secured a federal grant, I believe it was $4.4 million, to work on different projects related to treatment courts. And I am part of that grant 
And I, as part of the funding, will be traveling the country, meeting with participants from all races and ethnicities to give more voices to drug court participants. Because people will ask me, hey, John, so what do you know about Hispanic participants and their views on drug court? We don't know. I haven't done that research. That research is not done. We, we know there's some statistics to say, well, Hispanics tend to have lower graduation rates than white participants as well. But qualitative research giving, it's mostly been white participants and African-American participants. So unfortunately, Asian-Americans, um, American Indians, Hispanic participants, they don't have, they haven't been given a voice yet. And so uh, my colleagues from CCI and I and, and, and um, my research team, we're going to be traveling the country to compare and contrast all races and ethnicities and their experiences in the program. Because, you know, I can share anecdotally, but if someone said, you know, um, you know, uh, Hispanic participants' views on drug court, what do we know? I have no idea. I haven't done research in that area. So that will be, I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure it's a three, four-year grant. It's going to take some time. Uh, but from a research standpoint, it's, we're saying we know a lot about white participants, and we know quite a bit about African-American participants' lived experiences in drug court and why racial disparities exist. But these other races and ethnicities, they've been left out of the research, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of that has to do with sampling. I'll go to a court, like in Gary, Indiana, their court was, I think it was almost 100% African-American, which is consistent with the demographics of, 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 of that community. But, you know, I obviously can't interview Asian-Americans. They're not there. Right. So uh, I'll be associate editor for the Journal for Advancing Justice. And uh, I'm working on uh, this research to interview a national study giving all drug court participants from all races and ethnicities, a voice in the services. And then, you know, the thing, quite frankly, that, I, that I'm most proud of, I love my research, I love doing it, but I love teaching and working with students. You know, my, my job, as I see it, I'm sure there's many goals of teaching, but I, I'm gonna teach you something, and then I'm gonna try and, I try to help you uh, out to help you meet your career goals. And so in April, my students and I were doing a training on juvenile justice reform and a fundraiser uh, for the children's home, which is located near Baltimore, Maryland. And we're doing a training where I will be a presenter and I'll be talking about behavioral disorders in juveniles and how to best treat them from a clinical standpoint. Brooke Seam, she's a national mental health advocate and author, and she was on a reality TV show called Chopped. She, she won the Chopped Championship on the Food Network. Um, she's going to be a speaker. And then the, the superstars are my students, four students from my juvenile justice class that I'm teaching this semester. As part of the class, as part of their assignment, they're going to be presenting on juvenile drug courts, where my research is mostly on adult drug courts, so I'll learn a lot from them. And then they're going to be talking about, here's juvenile drug courts, and then what are best practices, some we talked about today, in serving African-Americans in all treatment courts. 
And so while working on the journal and publishing my own research is important, while doing this national study, we'll, we'll be interviewing participants, drug corporate participants from all races and ethnicities, you know, working with students and giving them an opportunity to, to speak and do a, you know, as I tell them, this is a very real professional conference, put it on your resume. And it kind of, the, the, the hope is that, you know, we're going to raise lots of money, all the money for the registration, hundred percent of it is being donated to the children's home. Um, and, and a hundred percent of that is my students doing good, doing social work. Let us volunteer my service. I have knowledge on juvenile drug courts and share it with others so we can raise money to give to an agency that can help kids. That's social work, in my opinion, at its best. And I think the best thing is this has all happened organically. And I mean, I was like, I'm thinking about doing a training and have my students involved. And I'm sitting on my lazy boy having coffee in the morning and I'm watching Newsy, a national news channel. And Brooke Seam, the author, mental health advocate, is on it being interviewed. And she's talking about antidepressant withdrawal, particularly with juveniles. I was like, wow, that's a cool topic. I like that. I emailed her out of the blue. She don't know me. Here's what I'm doing. I would love for you to be a speaker. And she said, yes. No strings attached. Emailing you, Todd. Here's what we're doing. We're proud of the work. We want to share it with others. You said, let's do it. Sounds great. And it's all about, you know, I love my work, but I will retire someday and I'll be happy retiring. Like I, 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 will, I, will, I will do my hiking and I, I will enjoy retirement. And these students, you know, they are the next generation of social work. Uh, and I want to I want to get a, a spark under them like I got a spark. I remember my first professional presentation was on like underage drinking it was in Reading, Pennsylvania a long time ago. And I remember doing it. and I was like, I love this. And I've been doing presentations since then because I enjoy speaking and sharing my experiences as well as giving people an opportunity to share their experiences with others. So the event uh, that my students and I are holding uh, in collaboration uh, with, with Brooke Seam uh, is, is a top priority now, meaning of my excitement level. Nice. Well, Dr. Gallagher, I really appreciate um, your work, number one. Um, I appreciate how forthcoming you are, appreciate how articulate you are, and I appreciate how pure you're coming at an issue that's near and dear to a lot of people in the world, but at HBCUs in particular. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you taking the time, and we have to do a we have to do a second one. We, we yes. have we, we have to do we have to come back and talk again, and the next time we'll do it will be with your students. So I really really look forward to that. Yeah, and my my students are very excited. One of them, Rebecca, said, "I'm gonna take off work for it." And I said, okay, well, I can maybe see if we can work right. No, so, no I'm, I want to be on the podcast. I'm going to take off work. I said, okay. You know, and I appreciate your flexibility with, with, we had to change to that one Saturday, but. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Gallagher. And, and we'll, and we will talk soon. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Have a great day.